and welcome back to another episode of the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. My name is Sam. I am joined by my podcasting partner, friend, co-worker, political enemy, and religious foe, <laughs> Steve. Steve, how are you doing? May may God and Allah be with you. <laughs> yeah, so once again, Steve's awful... Um, Try, his his awful greetings trying to tie into the movies Hat that we're me. doing. Yeah. So basically, this was Steve's idea uh, for today's episode. In the episode is director's cut. Uh, so these are hidden gems director's cuts that vastly improve on the original cuts of these movies. Um, I think in general, most director's cuts are hidden gems in some ways, unless they're director's cuts of incredibly famous movies, which is why Blade Runner doesn't count. Um, and in fact, I believe that the director's cut of Blade Runner is pretty much the predominantly viewed version now. Um, someone like me, born 1985, I only got to see Blade Runner on, I think my first time was on DVD. So by that point, it was the, the normal version was the director's cut, which was the lack of voiceover. Yeah. When I saw, I saw it in the theaters in 1982, I had high expectations. The, the commercials made this show, this movie look amazing, and it did look amazing. I, and, and it bored me blind. It didn't have. It didn't seem to have any very interesting ideas. It it trounced along in, in this in a incredibly sluggish, self serious pace, and had this terrible film noir narration. And when I saw the the director's cut, it was like. A, it followed basically the same plot. It was like it was a different movie. The interesting thing about director's cuts is that. Whenever they're sold, they just automatically indicate that they're better than the original, but that is not the case at all. A director's cut is just quite simply the director's original vision or first cut of the movie. Sometimes it's, a lot of times it's the studio says you can't release this version, you gotta release another. And sometimes the studio's right and sometimes the studio is wrong. Um, but to me, a director's cut does not indicate that this is going to be a better movie. And a perfect example of this is the most recent, the most recent Godfather 3 director's <laughs> cut, which is terrible. Oh, you've seen it, really? Oh, I saw it, and it's awful. It's I think Godfather Three is is underrated. Absolutely underrated. I, it got trash, and I, I don't understand why it got trash. It's not as good as the first two. It I, is, I can see it that. It is without any context a good movie. Yes, right. I, I completely without agree. context. That is a good movie. But his his director's cut is terrible. The the original theatrical release is so much better. So you know, I just want to you know bring up the point that a director's cut doesn't necessarily make a movie better. It's just a different version of the movie, and usually one in which the director was not allowed to release his version in theaters. Um, yeah. Well, Francis Coppola he has a history of. Uh, rechopping his movies. I, was there a reason for uh, Apocalypse Now Redux? I I, I don't know. Who, I mean, who I've knows? never seen Apocalypse Now Redux. Yeah. I saw Apocalypse Now. It, it's bogged um, down by an all you know. Godfather, he he recut the Godfather and Godfather two for television. Oh, was that his it, cut? Sorry, was that actually his? That cut? That was his cut. Um, okay. if, if I'm not mistaken, because yeah. he decided to put it. In chronological right. order, exactly opposite of what some directors do. You know, they, they go yeah. out of chronological order for artistic sake. He decided to uh, uh, put it, well, more, I should say more in chronological order. Yeah, I'm not a huge, like, proponent of director's cuts in general. I think they're only worthwhile if they significantly add to the movie. Yeah. Otherwise, I just generally don't care. The thing about movies that distinguishes a distinguishes it from television is you have to cut fat a lot of times sometimes this is good and sometimes this is terrible um sometimes the best just like in a steak sometimes the best part is the fat so a lot of times the best scene of a movie may get cut although i doubt it um because it's not directly relevant to the plot um and speaking of directors who constantly are releasing director's cuts um 
We're going to start with the first movie today by Ridley Scott, and that movie is Kingdom of Heaven. What did your father tell you of your obligation? From the director of Gladiator, protect the people. An oath to his father made him a crusader. We defend all! An invincible enemy. He has 200,000 men. You will be executed. Made him a leader. To take this city will be the end of you. Now, the first great motion picture event of the summer. Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven. Um, I'd like to do the stats. Go ahead. That's my favorite part. Yeah. Why is it? Cause, cause, cause I'm, cause because I'm you're, it? you're analytical and I'm artsy. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that, that's a good pair. That's yeah. a good pair. Uh, Kingdom of Heaven was released on May 6, 2005 by 20th Century Fox. May 6 suggests the beginning of the summer season, they had a lot of high hopes for this movie. They weren't not, they're not dumping it in an off-season time. Uh, the original cut ran um, two hours and 20 minutes. The director's cut runs three hours and 10 minutes. Significant. Yes, that, that, that's, that's huge. That's huge. It was directed by Ridley Scott, who also directed Blade Runner, who vastly improved that movie with his director's cut. It was written by William Moynihan, okay, uh, uh, after he talked to a lot of, uh, well, he said he talked to a lot of uh, historians. We'll get into that as to how much he could possibly have uh, consulted. Uh, it cost $130 million 15 years ago. Even now, that would be a decent-sized budget. 15 years ago, pretty pretty, pretty uh, huge budget. It only grows $47 million in the U.S., but it grows $218, 218 worldwide. Still means it was, a, it was a money loser, but in the at least initially released, but in the end, it might have broken even. Is that it? That is that is the stats. That was good. That was well. That was well listed off. Okay, so before I get into the plot, let me just talk about a little bit about why I chose this director's cut. I saw Kingdom of Heaven in theaters. Um, I don't know if I, we've ever talked about this on the podcast, but I have two great passions in life. Um, one is film, and the other is history. Uh, I I've always been into movies. I've been to movies since I was a kid. Even before I knew I was into movies, I was into movies. Right? I just was less self consciously so. What what age? What age would you say? Well, I remember. I remember I went to go see. Here's the thing: when I was like five years old, six years old, there were some movies I watched every single day. Now that doesn't mean they were good. Like one of them was uh, Robin Hood: Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner. I watched it every single day. I watched movies constantly. I remember I had a babysitter. She took me to the movies once, and I asked her a million questions about the movie. And when I look back on these times, it was clear to me, which is always something that I was interested in, obsessed with, quite frankly. I I showed an obsession for it before I even realized um, that I was obsessed with it. Does that make sense? The first time I ever realized I was obsessed with movies was when I watched The Usual Suspects. It was that movie that literally made me say to myself, okay, I've ex- this movie has hit me so profoundly, right? Just in my enjoyment of it, I said mm. I knew I must have some sort of connection to movies that is different because I couldn't stop thinking about it. I can see that 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 movie's an enormously entertaining movie. It yeah. is also a very show-offy movie. Yeah, and I was like twelve <laughs> years old. You know what I mean? It was perfect for me. Yeah. Okay. So um. So 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 back to this. Um. Kingdom of Heaven was a movie. I I I desperately wanted to be good because it was melding two of my main interests in life which was movies and then history history which i got really into in college about the second year of college i watched something which is now one of my favorite things ever and it's not a movie and maybe we'll talk about it one day but it's called i claudius um i claudius is probably my favorite 
12 episodes of anything ever. It's about the first uh, Roman dynasty, which is the Julio-Claudian dynasty. And I was watching it, and I was so taken aback with how degenerate this family was. I said, there's no way this can be true. And I started just doing some research. And when I discovered it was all true, I said to myself, my God, this is better than anything anyone could ever make up. Well, I would say they, um, it's supportable. It's supportable. So some sure. some of the more deviant things they have, it's it's supportable. It's not proven. Well, some of the things now that we're going into proven. now we're going to the weeds about a Don't, about a historian well, named Suetonius and whether or not he's to be believed. I mean, <laughs> my my passion for history runs deep now. Right. I mean, it's the only thing I read. I watch movies and I read history. I mean, the only reason I bring that up is because well, again, yeah, because we're going we're going to talk about Kingdom yeah. of Heaven in a second. But the point is, I really wanted Kingdom of Heaven to be good, and it wasn't, and I was disappointed. And then years later, and I, I was looking online, and I believe I saw this from Roger Ebert, but I read that Kingdom of Heaven, the director's cut, was one of the most substantial director's cuts in history, that it completely changed the movie. And uh, everyone said, like, look, you have to see, if, whether or not you like this movie, the only way to get a firm judgment on this movie is to see the director's cut because it totally changes the movie. I saw the director's cut. I couldn't agree more. It's a completely different movie on the director's cut. It's much more enjoyable. That's not to say the movie isn't flawed, mm -hmm. but if you like history, you know, the thing that's great about historical fiction, specifically movies, is that they can create visually the environment of history that you just don't get to see anywhere else, even if you read about it. And, you know, sure, you can look at paintings or illustrations, but... I, I kind of cut um, movies that are historically based a little bit of slack because they serve a purpose, which is to take me back to an era that I'm interested in. All right, so now let's get to the plot. The plot is this. Good luck. It <laughs> is, this takes place between the first and third crusade. So this is around the time of the, the second crusade, right? And it takes place where basically the kingdom of Jerusalem has already been conquered by the crusaders. It was conquered by the crusaders almost a hundred years ago. And in a small, poor dirt village of France, there was a blacksmith named Balian. Um, maybe played admirably, probably not played admirably by a young, hoping to be a superstar actor, Orlando Bloom. Played serviceably. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> And one day, his long-lost father, who he never knew, shows up to his small settlement, and he turns out that he is a crusader. And not only is he a crusader, but he is a lord in Jerusalem. He's a very important man in Jerusalem. Uh, you get the sense that this guy, played by Liam Neeson, his father, was not an important man before he went to Jerusalem. But when he crusaded into Jerusalem, he he fought and won himself many riches and a lordship, Um and he goes to find his son, basically. That's why he goes there, to find Balian, uh, for reasons that are unclear, other than he wants to basically right a wrong, which is deserting his son, as well as establish where his lordship, who's going to inherit his lordship. Because there is some, you know, if, 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 his, if he doesn't have a legitimate son, it'll go to his nephew, and that's a whole other thing. Anyways, flash forward. We're going to skip over some details here. Balian goes to the Holy Kingdom with his father. Spoiler alert, but not really a spoiler alert. His father dies along the way. Balian inherits his title. He becomes, he becomes a lord in Jerusalem. He starts to meet all the power players of Jerusalem at this time, which is the king of Jerusalem, who is the leper king Baldwin, played extremely admirably by Edward Norton. Under all that, um, uh, all, all those masks, yeah. Uh, arguably one of the two best parts of the movie is his performance. Uh, and then the most, the basically the most important development to talk about here is that this this movie takes place right before and then during the famous um, Islamic leader Salahadin's 
uh, conquest or retaking of Jerusalem. So Salahadin is a major character in this movie. He is the best part of the movie, in my opinion. And his goal is to retake Jerusalem. And the only thing, the only sort of thorn in his side is this pesky nobody turned nobleman turned Lord Balian, who is also a master at uh, defending cities for some reason. He's a blacksmith and he can build <laughs> siege equipments. And during the conquest of Jerusalem, uh, Salahidin runs into Balian, who is now the sworn protector of the city. Steve, how did I do on that? I think you did a very admirable job. It was a mouthful. It, 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 it's very complicated. Okay. It, it's very complicated. Well, so there's a lot of plot, though. There's a lot of yeah. plot. All right, so Steve, right off the bat, right. you know, this podcast may be derailed. Okay. Did you like this movie? I'm conflicted about this movie. Okay, this movie, I, I, in, you can definitely enjoy it mm-hmm. uh, as a sort of an adventure slash kind of soap opera ish, uh, you know how how power moves mm-hmm. in in the 12th century. Uh, every shot he gives, you know, Scott has that fussed over. Every frame looks like a painting mm-hmm. thing. You will not be disappointed like I was the first time I watched it. I could not appreciate the images I was seeing. Because uh, the movie was so dead. Yeah. It was so dead and so unmemorable and so dreary. Uh, the, the director's cut does, uh, the, the movie flows much better. Yeah. Uh, the, there's some, there's, there's a, there's a uh, the movie is kneecapped. Yes, it um, is. The movie is kneecapped by, the, uh, by Scott and Moynihan, the screenwriters, uh, just desire to make a 21st century well, to make a 12th century movie with 21st century sensibility. Oh, and so that's morality. not why. That's not why I think it's kneecapped. I think it's kneecapped. I think the reason the original version's bad. Well, there's another reason, but yeah, I think the reason the original version's bad and the newer version's better is because the original version focuses quite sensibly around the main character, who is the <laughs> worst part of the movie. I mean, he's not an interesting character. He's a completely pure character, even though they try to establish that he's not, but he is, or he's in search of purity. And this is not my review. Someone else wrote this, and I don't remember who it is, and I'm sorry. It's a major reviewer, though. This person doesn't need me giving them credit, Uh, but it is not my opinion. But somebody said, Orlando Bloom seems to be holding the fort or waiting for a more capable movie star to take his place. (laughs) That is pretty apt because yeah. I said he was his performance was serviceable. He's not glaringly bad in any scene. In my, he's I don't so think. not good that he is glaringly bad though. Uh, I in in, a, in, a, in any other movie you can list them off. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, um, Russell Crowe in Gladiator, great. Mel Gibson in in Braveheart. Uh, Braveheart. Great. These are tortured souls, and, and they're great. Really, yes, they're yeah. they're fantastic. And that he is there is a hole in this acting. Yeah. A, a movie can be built around a non-entity. It is possible to do that yeah. as long as you fill out the rest of the movie. And Scott does a pretty admirable job doing that. He knows how to put on a show. Okay, so we have to talk about it. Um, Hollywood is dominated by handsome people, both male and female. Um, if you're not handsome or pretty, so to speak, then you're a character actor. Uh, and I genuinely believe that while all these attractive people may not be the best actors in the whole world just taken evenly, they are certainly usually the best actors of the attractive people, right? They are the cream rising to the top of the subsect of attractive a- actor category. Which right? is a fairly small subset. But, but <laughs> nonetheless, you know, Tom Cruise, Mel Gibson, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, uh, Julia Roberts, um, 
Who am I missing? You know, what attractive people? They're Angelina all, Jolie. Angelina Jolie. Uh, Paul Newman. Paul Newman. All great actors. Yeah. They're not bad actors. Yeah, their their physical looks is what got them in the door. But at the end of the day, they're talented. I believe that Orlando Bloom slipped through the cracks here. He is attractive, but he's not talented. And there's a reason his career... You know, it's so weird. He's been in some incredibly profitable franchises, specifically mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings and then Pirates of the Caribbean. This guy's made a lot of money in the movie industry, but he's never been a big star. He he didn't add... He added virtually nothing... To any of them. To, to either of those franchises. Yeah. He seems so unformidable next to Kira Knightley. It's yeah. like, when is a, I mean, because she's another good actress. She's a very good actress, and she's also very beautiful. Yeah. Johnny Depp is, is the natural romantic default in that movie, That's in right. the first one. The, the, the second and third are garbage. Uh, he's a natural default. You can understand every scene that they have together mm-hmm. is terrific. There's not a single memorable scene between her and Orlando Bloom. I, I know we're, we're busting Bloom's chops. But, but it's true. I mean, he is a pleasantly bland actor who can be serviceable. He is... In my, he my is there is another attractive man out there who is a better actor than Orlando Bloom. This was a mistake. <laughs> Orlando Bloom being in movies is a mistake, quite frankly. He doesn't have it. He does not have what it takes. I actually am not sure, Steve, that if I looked like Orlando Bloom, I couldn't do a better job. I'm, I'm being dead serious. Like, I, I think he's that bad. Mm-hmm. I'm not to say I'm that good. I think he's that bad. I, I'm not going to be as hard on him as you. Um, again, again he, there are moments of, uh, you know, tenderness yeah. that yeah. he kind of pulls off, I think. Yeah. Um, but I totally agree with you. He is so... And he's out- his body of acting, yeah. he, his body in the movie. Yeah. You can't remember when he was, when he's in the scene. Yeah. When you see, when you see Liam Neeson... A full shot of Liam Neeson standing, hulking, with his sword above his head, it, it, it makes uh, uh, an actor like Bloom, is, is going to make him seem pretty slight to begin with. But add to that other characters. He is he is surrounded by a lot of characters, uh, a, a lot of terrific uh, yeah, uh, characters. So, Jeremy Irons yeah. is... is this is, Another, why liked, uh, this is why I want to talk. This is why I like this movie. If you like history, all the side characters in this movie are great, played by great actors. Uh, the Leper King Baldwin, uh, the, the, he's basically a king in Jerusalem. He's in his mid-20s, and he has leprosy, and he's played under a mask. And he is played fantastically with a type of sensitivity as well as political pragmatism and, oft- and some ruthlessness by Edward Norton. You've got... I'm sorry, I don't know the actor's name who plays Salah Hadin, and that's messed up because he's a non-American actor, and I don't know his name. Uh, Steve, do you have his name by any chance? I'm trying to look it up now. He played a, a few uh, a few years prior. Well, I, I don't I don't want to get this wrong, but I think he played the uh, the emperor um, in in uh, the Mummy. Really? Yeah, I, I think it was the same guy. Well, he's fantastic. The whole and then you've got Eva Green who plays the King Baldwin's sister. She's a wonderful actress. Okay, I got the guy's name, yeah. uh, Gassan Massad. Yeah, and he's great in it. Um, and I couldn't be more wrong. He did not. Uh, that's okay. He did not play. Yeah, it's uh, too bad that, that you, you. Yeah, it's too bad you picked the one like you know, kind of like the one movie he could be in. <laughs> Some like you know, <laughs> the Mummy. Uh, Ironically, he is also in uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Okay, so now you don't look as bad because <laughs> you know he'll do a movie like that. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, the movie's fleshed out. Uh, and the reason the director's cut is so good by all these side characters, these real people in history. Uh, the guy, uh, um, a, a podcast favorite here, Jeremy Irons, plays what is essentially the sheriff of Jerusalem. 
Uh, you've got the great actor David Thewlis, who plays a warrior monk. You've got Liam Neeson. Um, am I missing? Oh, you've got uh, Brendan Gleeson, who plays yes. um, uh, Reyna de... Man, how do you say his name? Uh, let me see if I can... Famous Crusader. Again. A very famous evil crusader name, like Ray, uh, R- Reynald, Reynald de Chatillon. Yeah, like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Reynald the, de most, of got, most of the principal characters yeah. are French. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, the Crusades was largely a French enterprise until the second Crusade, I believe it was, that was um, King Richard uh, the Lionheart. Who makes a brief appearance. <laughs> he does. I don't think the there's end. any spoiler to that, but yeah. uh, makes a brief so, appearance. So, Steve, for stars, just back to answering the question, did you enjoy the movie before we get into your criticism of it? I thought, I, I thought it was very absorbing. Yeah. And I loved looking at it. Yeah. He can shoot anything. That's right. Uh, he, he, he has this beautiful opening sequence um, where um, uh, at, at the gravesite, I believe mm-hmm. she's she's actually being um, uh, buried of of Balian's uh, wife, mm-hmm. and it has it has a grim beauty to it. Yeah. Whereas the, the originally, I just thought it was dreary. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the difference is. Maybe I'm, maybe it's in my head, but it, it's 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 a stunning uh, couple of couple of scenes. So Steve, let's get to your criticisms of this. Well, well, then we. Right. The, but okay. I want to say then we yeah. then we go to the desert and and yeah. things get warmer. His cinematographer is fantastic. Yeah. It's just beautiful, and I loved watching the movie. And I think you'll love watching the movie. This isn't one of those movies that is whose appeal is exclusively how pretty it is. No, I'm saying, do you like the side characters the way I like them, which I think is what makes up the the great parts of the movie? I I do because they cast. It's it's always interesting to watch what Jeremy Irons is going to do with a character. That's right, you know. And Edward Norton, his sensitivity in the in this role. It's very, it's very touching. A- Ava Green, I, I don't know if this was before, or it was either the year before or the year after she made a, a big splash in a Casino Royale. She's where great. she was devastatingly yeah. sexy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, she and, said the hottest line anyone's ever said to anyone in a movie, in my opinion, in that? that movie, in, in, the, in Casino Royale. She says, James, if all that was left of you was your little pinky, <laughs> you'd be more of a man than anyone I ever knew. Oh, my God. If, <laughs> that is great. That's a my great wife, line. My wife would never, ever say that to me. <laughs> sure she would. But if Come she, on. But if she, no, she would never give that to me. But if she did, I could, I could die right then and there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, the problems I have yeah. are, are largely... Um, uh, I, I think a problem is, is its treatment of religion, which is huge. It, that is the focus of this movie. This movie was uh, released in 2005. It was shot between January and May of 2004, mm-hmm. which means it was in pre-production in 2003. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, it, this was shown to... Uh, uh, the script was shown to Ridley Scott, uh, I think sometimes in 2002 when he was coming off of a movie. And we're, you know, this is right after 9-11, and I think he wanted to make a movie, make a statement about Christians and Muslims getting along. Yes, absolutely tried to. Yeah, I, I, think he, I don't think he made a very good uh, statement here. What, what he's saying is uh, any, anybody who's religious is dangerous, and that's unfair. Most of the Christians who, uh, who are devout in this movie are, are depicted as monsters and, and, and narrow-minded savages. There's yeah. one Muslim who is depicted as devout, and he is encouraging Saladin to go to war. So on both sides, you know, the people who are devout are, are seen as, as the problem. Yeah. The people who are the heroes are the people who have lost their faith. There's even this priest, played by David Thoas. Thoas, yeah. Thoas. It's funny because— He's a warrior monk. That's what he is. I, I've been reading some stuff on that character, yeah. Right. Um, was he a brutal killer? No, he, he's, oh. he's a fictional character. Oh, okay, okay. He's invented not real solely for the movie. In fact, he might have not. Well, 
the, the theory they're advancing is he was an angel or maybe even God in his presence. And the reason they said that is because remember when he got, when, when Orlando Bloom was assaulted, I, I think by assassins sent by, uh, you know, the, the king's brother-in-law, guy, evil. Guy de Louisian. Yeah, he is. Guy de Louisian. He is married to the king of Jerusalem's uh, sister, played by Eva Grain. Mm-hmm. He sends assassins to try and kill the Orlando Bloom character, uh, Baelian. And it looks like he's dead. And the Thelos character, whom he has he's crossed paths with before, mm-hmm. touches down brings him back to life. There are a couple of examples where he does things that aren't physically possible, but they're really quick. And Scott has said that he kind of wanted to introduce, maybe he's an angel, maybe he is even God. Interesting. You know, in I form. didn't pick up on that. Well, I didn't pick up on the other instances where like he disappears off, off a horse or something like that, but I did pick up on that. It was really weird when he went right down and he seemed to bring him back to life. Um, but even he doesn't believe in religion. Even this guy who supposedly God doesn't <laughs> like religion. I, I think it's kind of a cheap shot uh, at religion because it, in the first place, it wasn't entirely true. Are, I, we, are we classifying religion as the organization of spirituality? Because he's a devout man. He believes in God and Jesus Christ specifically. All right, here's a dirty little secret. I like the family guy. And in the, there's a line in the family guy that says, people who say that they are not religious but are spiritual, they're the first ones who go to hell. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know, right. Usually because it's a way of saying that you're, you're, you're virtuous without ever having to uh, you know, attain the, the discipline of the religiously pious. Well, sorry, but there's a comedian I like named Daniel Tosh, and he says, uh, whenever a girl says to me, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I like to say, I don't like to tell the truth, but you're interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Yeah. That's a good line. Um, The fact is that there there were many people uh, who, you know, for the Crusades, to quote the Maltese Falcon, it was Mm -hmm. a matter of loot. It was a matter of looting uh, the Middle East. But for other people, there there are people who are genuinely thought that this was a way of protecting the homeland, uh, the Crusades. But it wasn't their homeland at all. We need to talk about that. No, no, that's true. That's true. It wasn't their homeland a hundred years prior. It's interesting that Balian makes the the claim that since we've been here for a hundred years, that, you know, we didn't do any of the offending. Yeah. Now, that's an interesting case to make. Try making that with the Native Americans and, and, you know, the founding of the United States. Uh, Some people would find that kind of... uh, uh, flimsy on the other hand there is a point that the people who are living there now did not create create an offense but but uh but it's also true that they have a you know uh the uh saladin mm-hmm. definitely has concerns about the treatment of muslims yeah by the way um that, that's another thing uh the the treatment of both saladin and uh and uh the king of of jerusalem baldwin Muslim, baldwin not very accurate <laughs> But they're but they're incredibly well portrayed. They are. They're com- they're in ter- absolutely in, in well the, portrayed. In the in the in the measures portrayed. of fiction, those are good characters. Now I know a little bit about Salahuddin. I know less about Baldwin because there's less sources on him. Um, I found their portrayal of Salahuddin to be pretty good. What did you think that was so historically inaccurate about it? When this movie came out 15 years ago, I read yeah. this um, this. Uh, uh, um, this, this, uh, historian mm-hmm. who specialized in those times. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are they called? Uh, the, 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 middle, the, the Middle Ages? Oh, the, Crusades. the Crusades, okay. yeah. Uh, Crusade. And he mentioned that when this movie came out, a whole bunch of historians were at this convention. They went to go see it and they were appalled <laughs> about the lack of accuracy. Now, But what movie I don't would they a, not no, no, be no. appalled by? But this goes beyond that. Okay. He's, com- he's completely changing, changing the nature of these two kings. Baldwin was... Uh, 
was not tolerant. Jerusalem was not the home to Muslims that it was portrayed. Baldwin is, is supposedly incredibly tolerant of yeah. anybody. He's Jews. wise. He's wise. Right. But that's not true. Okay. Baldwin did not allow <laughs> Muslims to live in that area. Okay, okay. Um, in fact, I hate to say this, he was dead before, he's dead, he died about a year before the events, the main events of this movie okay. occurred. Okay. Okay? So, so they're using this guy, sure. because he has leprosy, because that's dramatic, yeah. to give him a persona that he did not earn. Saladin, on the other hand, he, he, he was largely forgotten, apparently, over the years, and was resurrected mostly by European historians as an example of a man who um, the perfect had knight. a very chival chivalrous, yeah. uh, had, had, had a rule of... The rule of, of, of combat. In the story, even in the history of the mm -hmm. Crusades, you read history books, the clear hero of the Crusades to the Europeans is Salah ad yeah. I cannot speak um, for the Muslim people around the world, and also I have not read, to my um, discredit, any of the Islamic histories of the Crusades. I've only re read them from people of European descent. But in those books, Salah Adin is the clear hero, the clear figure that you are meant to admire in the entire period of the Crusades. Yes, but um, th this historian casts some doubt as to whether uh, how much of that is true. Okay? Well, he's a political leader um, and a leader of armies. They can facts, never be, you know. Facts matter. Yeah. For sure. example, he allows all of the, uh, at, at the end. All the European um there's a point where uh, he allows of the city. Europeans to to uh, peacefully exit. Even say, that di that didn't happen. It didn't. No. He. I mean, he allowed many of them safe passage, but only if they paid ransom. And those who didn't pay ransom, he sold to slavery. In fact, um, I was reading one source. This knowledge is my knowledge is Wikipedia. I'm not a historian yeah, 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 by yeah. any means, and I yeah. and I didn't even pursue this. This is Wikipedia last minute. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I I'm leaving myself open for a lot of criticism. But from what I've read. Uh, according to this historian writing for the National Review, that uh, uh, there were so many people—actually, this is a different source I, I, I read—there were so many slaves that were sold amongst the European um, uh, soldiers and, and, and crusaders that people were, were buying these guys for uh, sandals. <laughs> okay. Is the National Review William Buckley's publication— <laughs> It is. Okay, you cannot be an historian for the National Review. You cannot be an historian for well, MSNBC. Well, he, no, no, he's not a historian for the National Review. Oh, okay. he, wrote a, he wrote an article that uh, the National Review uh, printed. I feel torn on this because did he write it knowing that the National Review was going to print it? Thomas F. Madden. Yeah, I think he wrote it for. I'm going to have to look him up because okay. I don't discount his facts, but mm -hmm. maybe his bias. And it would be the same thing if you were an historian— Employed by MSNBC, it's a like the, the reason I like history for the most part. Uh, the National is Review it, is not MSNBC. It's not Fox or I MSNBC think, or CNN or any, any of those levels. Now, we, the, the, the worst thing we could do is get into a political debate. Yeah. I don't want to alienate everybody. Yeah, he made it clear that uh, Baldwin was um, was right. incredibly guilty. He, yeah, right. you know, he had no love for for, mm -hmm. for Muslims. Yeah, um, but he also, but he also said that Saladin. Um, you know, uh, was joyful at the execution of, of, of certain but Christians. Let me say, so. These are historical inaccuracies that you have issues with, which I actually don't have issues with, especially with those two characters because they're the two best characters in the movie. So I have no problem with that. But do you in have, a in, yeah. in a in a strictly storytelling sense? Yeah, yeah. You 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 root for these characters. Yeah, but truth matters. It really does. I agree. But but in regards to the film, do you have critic? Because I have criticisms of the film that are slightly aligned with yours, mm -hmm. but they have more to do with writing and sort of simplicity. So before I go, do you have 
criticisms of in terms of the storytelling in the movie. I will say that this movie had been more; it would have been um, more complex. Yeah. Had it delved into um, some of the seedier sides of, of both, uh, you know, King Baldwin mm-hmm. and the less tolerant side uh, of Saladin, uh, they're they're made as two perfect people. You would wonder why anybody would ever oppose mm-hmm. them. You know. Okay, so I I disagree. I agree with you on the Baldwin part that he's portrayed as perfect, although slightly, because at one point he asks Balian to do something that is quite ruthless um, to preserve power, basically. Uh, That's another point I had a problem. I we think Salahadine is played more as a politician, which I really enjoy. Now, here's here's my main problem with the movie, outside of the fact that the main character is terrible and a horrible bore, and the movie would just would have been better off without him. It would have been better if, if uh, what's his name, um, Altman, Robert Altman, had directed this movie, and it was just you know <laughs> meandering around all these different interesting characters, um, plotless. Here was my problem: the movie. Look, I am Jewish. Uh, I'm not Christian. I am not Muslim, I am Jewish, and I am an atheist at the same time. I consider Judaism to be my ethnicity. Uh, Judaism has long been considered an ethnicity until World War II and the Holocaust, and it was decided that considering Jews to be an ethnicity was dangerous because it could lead to atrocities like the Holocaust. Um, I understand why they did that. Uh, But nonetheless, I grew up in a Jewish household that wasn't very God-believing, but we did things like celebrate Passover and other stuff. And I feel like it's my culture. Like, I am a Jewish person, like, culturally, even though I'm not a spiritual person at all. I don't believe in an afterlife or in God. Here's what I will say. As a person who, A, completely thinks that the Europeans are at fault in the Crusades, they had no business going there, they committed far more atrocities uh, during the Crusades than their Islamic counterparts who were living in the region. The first Crusaders, when they got to uh, Israel, I mean, when they got to Jerusalem and they conquered it, they slaughtered almost everybody in the city. They slaughtered Jews in the in the in the Holy Temple of Jerusalem. They slaughtered uh, the Muslims in the city. They said the blood ran up to the knees in some of these places. And they actually right. mentioned that in the movie. They okay. made reference to it in the movie. But my problem, that part they got accurate. My problem with this movie is that the evil Christian characters are so um, simple minded and poorly written. It is like it is it is kind of like how a college kid who just is in his phase of, I don't like religion, right, would write these characters. Um, the, the Christians, the, the evil Christians, are just really poorly written villains. Um, that's my main problem with them. It's not that they're evil, it's that the writing of them is just really bad at times, especially Guy and Reynald de Ch- whatever his name is, <laughs> Reynald, I'll call him, but Guy and Reynald, who are the two main antagonists of the film, they're both Templars. Guy will be the future king, uh depending on how things go. And Reynal is his sort of his deputy who he basically wants to start a war with the, with the Muslims. Um, they're just really terribly written. Uh, there's so much sort of simple minded analysis of, of why the Christians were bad, but it's not, it's not well thought out or intelligent. Even if I agree with some of the sentiments, that doesn't mean it's well executed. Well, that's sort of what I was, I was talking about the, the, the two main characters of Baldwin and Saladin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you have to concede, uh, you know the the you know the moral complexities uh, that these ca- that the real life characters yeah. had. Uh, there was genuine devoutness. It wasn't all about money for, for some Christians. Mm-hmm. I, again, I don't want to go into this. You I'm know sure more about, you know more about that, the Crusades sure than most, I do. I'm sure most of the Christians, the soldiers that went to Europe, 
and slaughtered tons of people were probably incredibly devout. I don't think that being devout necessarily doesn't mean you can't slaughter people. I'm sure a lot of the leaders who led these movements were trying to conquer land and gain riches. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, the Crusades were started as a defense of of the Byzantine past Empire. Christian, past Christian uh, 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 lands that were... were, were... The, the Byzantine Emperor Alexius uh, asked the Pope for help in reconquering some Byzantine lands that had been taken over by the Muslims. That's how it started. But my point is that fanaticism and devotion are not mutually exclusive. In fact, I think you have to be devote you you have to be devout to be a fanatic, in my opinion. Well, uh, the Christians in this movie are either you know, money grubbing hypocrites or they're insane. They're, yeah, they're right. demented. Yeah, they're just poorly written. Yeah, they're uh, just poorly written. All right, but here's what I want to say about um. Slahidin and Baldwin. Baldwin is uh, is saintly. I'll give you that. I enjoy his character. I love the performance. But he's saintly. Mm-hmm. Although at one point, he as he is dying, he asks Balian to murder Guy de Louisian and marry his sister so that his uh, nephew, the younger Baldwin, I think was also his name, can take the crown without any fear of Guy. And at the same time, there will be no war with Muslims because Guy at this time is the leader of the most of the Christian soldiers. Um, and Baldwin refuses to do it. And now I'm going to give away my favorite line in the movie. Uh, Baldwin, who this entire time is this boring, seeking purity character. Uh, he refuses to do it because to the kill guy, the pure, the pure, the pure at heart are always the most boring. Characters They're always the most boring character. And at one point when he, when he refuses Baldwin and Baldwin's disappointed, uh, uh, Eva Green's character says to him, what's her name again in the film? I'm terrible with names. Anyways, I'm gonna have to look so I Eva Green's character says to Bailey, and by this point they're lovers, she says to him, one day you may uh, wish you had done a little evil to do a greater good. And I could not agree more. Um, I find that's a very prescient statement in general. I thought there's a lot of movies. Uh, Sibylla? Sibylla, Sibylla, yeah. Sibylla is the name of the Eva Green character. There are all kinds of movies that ru- that that tussle with this Yeah. And they almost all come out on the naive Tay side. Yeah. Uh, uh, Brubaker with Robert Redford. You know, yeah. Yeah. do you do you um do you stop and consolidate the goods you have yeah. and let evil go by, or do you charge through? And they romanticizing the charging through and yeah. remaining pure, and then uh, everybody gets slaughtered. Yeah, if <laughs> if if, if Balian had just done what Baldwin had asked. Things would have went great um, for a period of time in this fantasy right. in this yeah, fantasy, in this fantasy world. Yes. Right. But here's what I want to get to. I keep avoiding it. I lo- my favorite part of the movie. My main problem with this movie is that on the Christian side, it's either totally pure or totally evil. But on the Muslim side, whenever they show Salahuddin's camp, it's much more political. When I say political, I don't mean impure. I just mean realistic. The dynamics are more complex. Mm-hmm. Salahuddin is a leader of Muslims who is not outright attacking Jerusalem. He doesn't has, even want to. Doesn't even want doesn't to. He has to. made peace with the King Baldwin, and yet he has um, what could account to minor uh, you know, Muslim leaders under him who are saying, look, you, you have united the Muslim world, which at that time was a very fractious world. The reason the First Crusade uh, succeeded was because the caliphate, which was the uniting monarchy, um, or theocracy of the Muslim world had completely fallen apart. So it was all these, you know, minor kingdoms, so to speak. And the and as a result, because the Muslims were not unified, the first crusaders were able to march right into Jerusalem. Salahuddin unites the Muslim people, creates a, a great army of over 250,000 men, which at that time is enormous. Uh, that's another thing that the that, that historian disputes said. The uh, number of people. Actually, not this. It, this was in Wikipedia, apparently. Uh, it's probably closer to 50,000. Might be. 15? 50. 
Okay. Um, either, way, it, it, yeah. Yeah. either way, the point is there's a great pressure on him to conquer Jerusalem, to keep the Muslims together because this is what he has promised. So he's got some more fanatical members of his own faction who are pressuring him into doing something he doesn't want to do. And I found that the portrayal of Salah Hadin, you may say it's inaccurate, but I say it's complex. I think he was a complex character in this film. And the way that they dealt with his side of things is the way I wish they had dealt with the entire movie. Then I think you would have had a really fantastic movie. I agree with you on that point. Okay. On that point. And I think it would have been a more interesting movie if on on the Saladin side, they explored it a little. There's only like two or three scenes yeah. in, in which he has to, um, you know, balance... Uh, you know, trying to achieve peace yeah. and, you know, appeasing the factions. What, what the movie says are, you know, the, the hardline factions. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes down to director's cut, um, there are all these side moments in the film that flesh out the world of the Crusades. And if you like history, the, the great, the reason I'm always easier on historical fiction, I tried to recommend this movie to a friend and every criticism he had of the movie and not wanting to see it were completely valid. Um, but if you like history, the great thing about movies like this is they transport you to a time. It lets you see kind of how things looked and how things felt. And even if the movie also misleads you, that's okay. It's, <laughs> no, it's, it's not. More no, really, about it really isn't. <laughs> it's more about an environment. It's recreating a time. Um, I understand what you're saying, but uh -huh. I guess for me, as someone who's always going to read up at the end of the day, I kind of look to these films to provide me quite literally a visual um, building block of what things look like. And I think the movie does that fantastically, as you said. You know, the, not just the cinematography, but just the budget he's working with. He's creating, I guess it's four, uh, no, it's probably like 13th century or 12th century. I think you know, it's 1186. So yeah, 12th so 12th century, 12th, yeah. 12th century you know, yeah. um, Middle East in Jerusalem. Um, I just think it's. It was definitely impressive. Uh, yeah. Everything that was shot, it was shot in Spain and in uh, Morocco. Yeah, yeah. Very convincing. I, I thought. You know, is, is amazing looking. One last interesting thing before we get to some questions is apparently one of the scenes he put in this movie was a fight, a sword fight between Balian and Guy de Louisian at the very end, hero versus bad guy. And apparently Ridley Scott purposefully cut this out of the original cut and the studio made him put it in for the director's cut which is like unheard of. So in order to release the director's cut, he had to put in the scene that he didn't originally did not put in the original cut for good reason. He, he even says like, ah, oh, the studio wanted it and we just filmed it on some back lot. I found that that scene was stupid. And he agrees with you. I thought, I thought it, what, what do we just enter a, a, um, a, a lethal weapon movie yeah. here where the, you know, the good guy faced off the bad guy? I hated that scene. Yeah, and, so, very did interesting and so did Ridley Scott. But what's really mm -hmm. fascinating in context of director's cut is that in order to release the director's cut, he had to put this scene back in the movie. <laughs> I mean, when does that happen? Okay, so first question, Steve. Well, or, can I give you my yeah, line? Please. Yeah, my that line. was going to be my question. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll, I beg your pardon. Yeah, so what's your question? My, oh, my, your my, favorite, <laughs> my favorite line, well, I shouldn't say favorite line, but the most revealing line is... It's spoken by Liam Neeson as his surrogate, as as uh, Balian's uh, surrogate father. He's giving them all these instructions for manhood, and one of the sense, things he says is, "Speak the truth, even if it leads to your death." Right. And I thought they're not willing to speak the truth, even though it might make a more complex uh, movie. <laughs> so it's, it's your favorite line only to prove your point. Yes, that the movie is <laughs> I'm working. Sc I'm scoring points off its own yeah. screenplay. Yeah, exactly. The movie is working uh, <laughs> at cross purposes to itself. Okay, Steve. 
I only have one question for you this time because I think there's only one question that matters uh, when it comes to this movie. And the question is, can this movie overcome Orlando Bloom? <laughs> Taking this movie on its own terms. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, you think it can? Absolutely. It is an enjoyable movie. If you can put aside... and. There, I'm not trying to be fanatical about the historical inaccuracies, yeah. Yeah. but given the time that uh, this movie was made yeah. and what they were trying to do, you know, I, I think it, I think it was misguided. But as a piece of storytelling, in a vacuum, it's an entertaining movie. Absolutely, and I think it survives Bloom, who I don't think is an embarrassment. He comes close to it. <laughs> you, you, I know you. He's I know also you, poorly you written. He's poorly written, but I do think a better actor would have lifted it a little bit. A better actor would have found ways to portray the conflict uh-huh. in that character, which was, you know, seeking to be pure, a pure knight, which was some of the worst dialogue in that movie. They keep referring to, like, you think you're a, a, a true knight or a pure knight. You know, that's what he wants to be, but I think a better actor could have uh, explored those depths uh, more clearly. I hate movies that um, insist on trying, uh, uh, giving tormented souls to the perfect. You know, uh, one small slight uh, moral yeah. uh, breach is 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 horrible. Yeah. I wasn't there when when my mm-hmm. youngest, uh, you know, died in a crib or something like that. Now, oh, come on, get, you can do better than that. With most people, you can do a hell of a lot better than that. By the way, Balian is a char- is a real life yes, character. Yes, I know. Who was not born in who was not born in France. He was born in Jerusalem. Right. And I think that's an important point because if he was born in Jerusalem, then he couldn't make this claim. And a well-known knight, by the way, not yeah. a blacksmith, he couldn't. He couldn't give you this humble purity yeah. of being um, in France. It gives him a reason for going to France, other than wanting to loot the place, yeah. which, uh, admittedly, many of them were. Yeah. Many, many of the people were there to do. It, it's it. They had to jury rig the character. To fit what they were trying to say, I agree, and it made it it made it more clumsy and then less yeah. interesting. It's a very clumsy script for half the movie. It, it's kind of like I, I feel like this movie was written by two different people: the guy who wrote Saladin's stuff and the guy who wrote all the Christian stuff. And I feel like one guy's approaching it like an intelligent person, and the other guy's <laughs> approaching it like a college kid writing his first screenplay. You know, Christians are religions evil. It's just like, look, I'm not even pro religion, Steve. I'm not. But I, I, reco- I, think I've, I think I've heard that. But uh, I recognize before. bad writing. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I don't have any other questions for you. So let's just do our bad pitches. I'll give mine first. Okay. I think we may both have the same movie in our bad pitch, but I'm going to do my, but you definitely don't have my second one. My bad pitch is Gladiator <laughs> meets being there. Being there with Peter. <laughs> wow, that's hilarious. That's good, right? All right. So let's explain being there for a second. Uh, that's the, when they do a remake of being there, they can hire Orlando Bloom. Exactly. Be so being there is about a simpleton, he uh, like a, a guy with like Forrest Gump level intelligence, maybe even lower, who basically he sort of like cons everybody without meaning to into like keep elevating him into positions of responsibility and power. He's just, he's a simpleton. He's a nothing character. People interpret his simple mindedness with yeah. profound uh, right. thoughts. Exactly. And that's how I, that's how I view Bailey in, in this movie. So that's my, wow. I'm proud of that one. That is pretty, that's, that is very good. Yeah. By the way, being there could be considered a, uh, in general, we'll have, we'll have to tackle. Um, you're right. You're absolutely right. I, I picked gladiator, meets dances with wolves oh. <laughs> you know and you, you have this tortured soul who yeah. has to who has to go to another place yeah um in dances with wolves he's going out west in this movie he's going east yeah in, in order to uh i don't know quell his tortured soul yeah uh meanwhile 
He, he, he leads everybody, although he's a visitor who's never com who's never had combat before. He only makes uh, weapons of combat. He instantly becomes one of the greatest swordsmen of all time, yeah. you know, and leads the people uh, to safety. Okay, here's what I want. My final note on this movie before we move on is it is not as good a movie as Gladiator. However, for whatever historical inaccuracies this movie has, it is a far better history movie than Gladiator. Because you want to talk about historical inaccuracies. <laughs> At the end of Gladiator, Rome becomes a republic, which is just <laughs> insane. Um, you know, like, like if, you, if you know anything about the story of Commodus and how he was killed, right? Nothing good. It's just another 200 years of civil war between emperors. Like you Interrupted to, by a few decent emperors. Yeah, like you want to talk about historical... Like, I love Gladiator. It is mm -hmm. one of the most historically inaccurate <laughs> films ever made it would be like it would be like if at the if, if you made a movie i don't know about like the revolutionary war and england won <laughs> you know, it's like that historically inaccurate both directed by uh ridley scott. ridley scott who is not a slave to historical accuracy he said about this movie this is not a documentary no boy he got that right <laughs> okay any final thoughts on this movie before we move on um only that you know, don't misunderstand me you know i i, I don't I, I I don't think that the you know the Christians had had halos. I I, I recognize yeah. they did not have halos yeah. uh, during this period, but it would make it a, a far more complex. Um, he might have have made a, uh, accomplished more if he explored the deficiencies of of what motivated them a, a little, in a little more complex way. Okay, all right. So our next movie is the granddaddy, the biggest fish of all the Director's Cuts movies. If you know anything about Director's Cuts movies, <laughs> then you know that this movie is the holy grail of them because they keep coming out. And that movie is Once Upon a Time in America. It was a time when America was changing, when an empire could be built on greed. If we listen to you, we'd still be rolling drunks for living. You broke Violence. Today they ask us to get rid of Joe. Tomorrow they ask me to get rid of you. And betrayal. He's gonna do this. He's gonna do it with or without you. Robert De Niro. Once Upon a Time in America. Rated R. Starts Friday, June 1st. Check newspapers for a theater near you. Okay, so Steve, give us the stats on Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was released uh, by Warner Brothers June 1st, 1984. Again, a, a summer picture. This is right as the tentpole stuff was happening. But this, I think, was counter-programming. Okay. You know, it, this was being released Yeah, why released in summer? Like, weird. It's a prestige picture. <laughs> yeah, it, this was released in uh, June 1st, 1984. I forget what movie was the tentpole. Uh, I believe it was the, the Indiana Jones movie, uh, Temple of Doom. Uh, right around that time, probably a little uh, earlier. It was produced by the Lad Company, who was behind the butchering of this movie. It was directed by Sergio Leone, mm -hmm. uh, the great Italian director. Uh, it was written by Sergio Leone and seven other guys I am I have no intention yeah. <laughs> of listing. It's based on a novel by a guy named Harry Gray. It originally ran... Now, he, this is kind of interesting. The, the cut that uh, Sergio Leone delivered to the studio was three hours and 49 minutes. Although there's like eight hours of this movie like out there in the atmosphere. Originally, he wanted it to be released as two separate three-hour movies. He wanted this to be like the 1967 Soviet War and Peace, which is exactly what they did. Uh, they they cut it up into two. The movies. 1967 Soviet War and Peace is like six and a half hours between three parts that aired mm -hmm. over the course of like two years. 
Oh wow! Yeah, well, sort of like I guess a Lord of the Rings, a, a yeah. Lord of the Rings, I guess that that's what that's Sergio Leone after he after he shot it. I I think he developed this idea. I don't know mm-hmm. if he developed it while he was shooting it, but he wanted it released two six hour um, uh, epics. The Lad Company says no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta get, we gotta go put butts in the seats. We need to turn over. We need to sell popcorn. We're gonna cut it down to two hours and nineteen minutes into an incomprehensible mess. Yeah. Um, the movie cost thirty million dollars, which was a substantial amount. Yeah. Back then, uh, especially for uh, uh, Sergio Leone's uh, spaghetti westerns did very well over here, and they were they were incredible. I, I think uh, uh, you know. Uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is a great epic. Okay. And and uh, Once Upon a Time in the West is a fantastic movie. The movie only grossed about $5 million. <laughs> um, That's got, a huge loss. Yes. It, it got no love from the Oscars, but was nominated for Best Director and Best Score by the Golden Globes. And it might have they might have got their eyes on the three-hour and 49-minute, which may be why. Hmm. You know? Uh, that is, those are the stats. Steve, I hate to step on your territory. Uh-oh. I don't know if this is a stat. Maybe you uh-huh. knew this already, but it is a bit of information. Uh, Leon was asked to direct The Godfather. I did know that. Yes. Okay, so you knew that. And, and then he, that he, he, turned he turned it down so he could make this film. Which tells you how long this movie had, had been yeah. germinating in his mind. This was, uh... Okay, time for the plot. Going to try and do a better job of this one. Making this it sure is much harder. I was going to make I it. I think it's actually it's easier, which really? is, is quite simply a group of four Jewish boys in the year what, like nineteen oh five? Nineteen twenty. No, but when are they? When do they start? When they're out? kids. When they're I, kids. When they're kids, I believe they're nineteen twenty. No, no. And then no. they fast forward sixteen years to nineteen. Um, no, no. This movie t- takes place earlier than than the nineteen twenties. Because I think when when Robert De Niro is an old man, I think it's only like the seventies. It's sixty eight or sixty or sixty nine. Yeah, yeah. And, but he's Which is old... about thirty years later. So um, they're in their prime. Yes, I that's... believe in in the early thirties, just as prohibition is. About no, I'm talking. Well, well, yeah, but when they're kids, when they're kids, I think it was nineteen. I might be. I might be. Okay, I thought I read nineteen twenty. Somewhere between nineteen fifteen and nineteen twenty five. Yeah. Right, is when this movie starts. Four you Jewish right. youths okay. in the Jewish part of New York. Um, basically plan to become gangsters who want to dominate their neighborhood. And, you know, the movie's an epic. It goes over a long period of time. You've got these four Jewish friends. Um, one uh, character played by Robert De Niro, his name is Noodles. Another Jewish character played by James Woods, his name is Max. Another character played by the sort of niche actor uh, Bill Forsyth, William Forsyth. His name is Cockeye because he has a cockeye. And then the last character, what was his name? Do you remember? You know, I um, I think it was Patsy or something. I think it was Patsy, but we'll find out. Um, and he was played by an actor whose name I cannot remember, but who died of a heroin overdose. You're right, it is Patsy. Yeah. Uh, played by an actor named James Hayden. Who died not long after of a heroin overdose while playing a part in a play. Pan- I think the one with um, Al Pacino, Panic in Needle Park. Uh, was it Buffalo 66? Or- or- he was playing in a play where he played, I think, a heroin addict, yeah. but also overdose of heroin. Yeah. So, you know, art imitate or life Not imitating Buffalo art. 66. I'm, I'm I think it was Panic in Needle Park, isn't it? I thought it was that David Mamet Buffalo. Um... Uh, either way, because yeah. I know that Panic in Needle Park is an Al Pacino movie, but I thought yeah. maybe it was a play first. Anyway, so they grow up, and the movie is centered around this. It starts off where Robert De Niro, I'm not giving away any spoilers. It starts off where Robert De Niro witnesses his three friends, uh, Patsy, Max, and Cockeye, who are dead 
after a botched um, sort of like booze pickup. Um, this is during the time of Prohibition. And he goes, uh, Robert De Niro, you know, he's grief-stricken. He goes into a, an opium opium den, smokes some opium, and then it flash-forwards in time. Now Robert De Niro is an old man. It's 1968. He's returning to New York after a very long period of time being away because he has received an invitation to a mysterious person's party on Long Island named um, Secretary Bailey. And the reason that this is so mysterious is that Robert De Niro has been in hiding all these years. The reason he has been in hiding is because, once again, no spoilers, in the very beginning of the movie, it is shown that his girlfriend's looking for him in his apartment right after this botched booze raid goes down. And some men show up at the apartment looking for Robert De Niro because they noodles because they believe he has ratted out his friends. And in the course of trying to solve this mystery in the present time, 1968, of who is Senator Bailey and how did he find Robert De Niro, who's been in hiding all these years, it keeps flashing back to his uh, memories growing up with these with these uh, these these three other Jewish lads as they attempt to become kings of Jewish Brooklyn. <laughs> so how did I do on that one? Bravo. Okay, Steve, this was From your pick. Bat- you, you say why you pick. <laughs> I saw, I, I never saw this movie when okay. it came out. And when it came to cable, I think I caught it a couple of times. And I saw, uh, not not all the way through. And I know it had this fantastic reputation, the director's cut, because the director's cut was known almost immediately. Yeah. It was known of, nobody just, nobody ever saw it. I read somewhere that uh, I think Roger Ebert said it was the worst movie he'd ever seen, or Gene Siskel, <laughs> or the worst movie of the year. Then he saw the director's cut, named it the best movie of the eighties. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, that's how that's how different, that's yeah. how bad a bad cut can and be. And you saw the original theatrical release, not when it came out, okay. and I didn't. I only caught it on cable. I didn't see it. I never saw it through the the, the whole way through. Okay. And I just picked this before I knew whether it was a, a true hidden gem. Okay. And I think it definitely qualifies, so, having seen it. So the only version I had ever seen up to this point, and we'll talk about it, was the most widely circulated version, which is about three and a half hours. This is what's called uh, the first director's cut. The reason I mention this is that there are more than one director's cut of this movie, but most places you're going to find this movie, you're going to find, what is it, like a... 189 minute runtime. So yeah, no, a three hour and 49 minute runtime. Uh, I tried to yeah. find it on my cable provider and it acknowledged it exists, said it was, wasn't available. So, okay. so what do you think? easy to get. So, you give me, before I give you my thoughts on the movie, because I think we're going to have some disagreement here on this film. Give me your, why do you like this movie? I like the sweep of it. Okay. Certainly I like epic. the storytelling. This is one of those movies that, um, has a deliberate pace, which some people think is the same thing as being boring, but it's not. It's not. It has a very deliberate pace. I think the movie is uh, strongest when it's dealing with their young lives. And we talked about this, uh, I think, before, before, and uh, I think you, you agreed. The characters seem more fascinating. Uh, there's never any point where these kids are wrestling with their conscience about yeah. coming criminals. Yeah, they yeah. know this yeah. is the path that they're right. going to, from the very beginning, even when the first two characters, Noodles and Max, meet, they're both engaged in a hustle. That's right. It's they're just one, a competing one hustle. One hustles the other. And it's, it is terrific. And you get, the, you get the sense of the of the, the criminal vitality of these kids. Yeah, you know? right. And you can understand how it passes down. Um, when, it, when it lurches... To, to the future, it gets it gets more serious. That's right. A little less compelling, and the movie has a big problem, in my opinion, and that is a performance of Robert De Niro. Hmm. I was expecting a fascinating performance. Maybe he wanted to depart 
from that brilliant performance he gave in The Godfather Part Two, which mm-hmm. is just unspe- unspeakably brilliant. Yeah, you know, right? It's 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 just so there's so much going on behind his eyes. There's nothing going on behind his eyes here. He is he's kind of an enigma, and one of the biggest plot points. What this movie is trying to say is how durable are friendships? Uh, what constitutes betrayal? Mm-hmm. As you said, um, there's some men at the beginning of the movie looking for uh, noodles because they believe he ratted them out to the authorities, which sh- resulted in what seemed to be the death of many of these characters. Uh, and what, Rob, what, the, what noodles actually does is... On, on the surface, it appears that he is betraying them, but he's actually doing it to save them, which I didn't buy, by the way. I did not <laughs> but, buy but Noodles ever doing this. But he was also going to sacrifice in this, which is a little different. That is true. He was going to go away with them. Yes. And having been to prison earlier, uh, the movie has has uh, the transition from childhood to adulthood. Is through, when, a, through a lengthy prison sentence. <laughs> yes. And Needles, I think it's 12, 12 years or something yeah. like that. He goes into the prison. He comes back. Everybody's everybody's all grown up. Yeah. The, the actor changes mm. from a child to Robert De Niro. Yeah. To, to 40, uh, yeah. In 12 years, when, they, when he should be in his mid-20s, we get 40-year-old Robert De Niro. But he's playing mid-20s. Yes, he's he's playing mid twenties. Yeah. The only well, time we ever anyway. got to see mid twenties Robert De Niro, I believe, is Mean Streets. Yes, uh, he actually made a few uh, movies even before that. Yeah, but with who cares? Brian De Palma. Well, some of them I I, I care even really I good... care even less now even that less? you said Brian De Palma. They were weird, twisted comedies. Believe it or not, I just I don't like Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma, I have no interest. Anyway, well, I, yeah. I used to have a phenomenal fascination with De Palma in the late seventies, but anyway, uh, I, I do like e- e- even as it progresses. Yeah. Because they, they still retain that energy that makes movies like this exciting. The thrill, there's this fantastic scene where they do not use violence in order to get what they want out of a, uh, I believe, a, pol- uh, a police chief. Danny Aiello. Aiello played by, yeah. wonderfully by Danny Aiello. Yeah. He is a blustery, proud Italian police officer, just had a baby. But the problem is, um, he is he is opposing scabs in the union. That's right. Or, or maybe it's he's. I'm no, sorry. no, he's I got trying it, to I got bust it, up the union. I got exactly. Yeah, the gangsters the opposite. are yes. behind the union. They're supporting the union, and exactly. the police. And he's, and the trying to, he's trying yeah. to. He's trying to. He's trying to assist the uh, a union. Yeah. Well, the gang wants to uh, blackmail him into backing off and uh, and letting the union. Uh, you know, have their way. Get their negotiate. They're negotiating with management, and of course, management is trying to bust up the union by using the police as well as other. Union, anti-union enforcers, which right, is common. Right. The way they do this, I'm not even going to give it away. It's so clever. They don't yeah. use a, a little, uh, the slightest bit of, of violence, but they use something very clever. The, the scene is wonderful. It's also a really ruthless thing to do. It is. It is. It is so ruthless without harming anybody. Yeah. It, it, and I love the way they work this out. But that, unfortunately, that was the last bit of real energy and vitality that I saw. In the movie, the movie starts wrestling with um, the burdens of keeping this criminal empire. It's not huge, actually. Yeah. It's not huge, but it they're has pretty, made them they're, wealthy. They're, they're slightly small time. They are. They've accumulated a million dollars. Yeah, which is a lot for back then. Yeah, but they're, uh, but oh, they're still, according to Max, the James Woods character, they're still small time. They haven't yes. reached the type of pinnacles of power that he aims to achieve, if not for them, for himself. But not noodles, and that's where the rift. That's where the that's rift right. comes in. 
Noodles is okay with being small time. Noodles doesn't want a boss. Max right. said he didn't want a boss. He changes his mind. Noodles never does. There's this terrific scene where um, early on... I think you're about to step on my favorite line of the movie. I, no, I, I assure you I'm not because I can't okay. remember any of the lines. Okay, okay. But early in, early in, the, uh, in the movie, when they are kids... Uh, Noodles has this fascination with, with this young girl who uh, is played the daughter by Jennifer of, Connelly. Played in the young, yeah, uh, as a child by Jennifer Connelly, then later by Elizabeth McGovern. She is the uh, the child of a local, I think, a tavern keeper. Um, he's close with her brother. It's like a Jewish deli restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he 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 looks at her um, through a peephole. You know? Oh boy, this was this is one of the things in the movie I never forgot when I watched it the first time, and it made me just as uncomfortable the second time. <laughs> it is it this is this is a challenging movie uh, through a lot of it. Basically, <laughs> anyway. Jennifer Connelly's character, this young girl, she's she's doing her ballet dance noodles in what is one of the most famous um, scenes. I think it's the best scene of the movie, quite frankly. Uh, it's also one of the most famous transitions in history, which is the original Noodles goes back to this deli in 1968, and he looks through the peephole as an old man, and then it switches, and he is seeing what looks like a sepia tone, you know, film of a, of a young girl dancing, and then it switches back to the peephole, and now it's young Noodles. So in that one moment, the movie is transitioned from the present day to the past tense, which which is you know the beginning of that story, and. It's a, one the of those, transitions are fascinatingly and it's, uh, edited. And it's one sometimes of the most good, beautiful shots you'll ever see in your whole life of um, Jennifer Connelly dancing because it looks like an old photograph where it's, it's got this amber tone to it. And it's just, there's, you know, there's a little bit of like almost like powder in the air from like some of like, like the deli bags, like whatever, like wheat and flour. Yeah. And she's, and she's dancing this beautiful dance. And there's um, some, there's some music playing, I believe. And, um, yeah, and there's she's she's doing ballet, mm -hmm. and and then well, it's the score, the very famous score to this movie, mm -hmm. and he's watching her and sort of like that child, like he he first of all he's he's peeping Tommen on her, um, and then at one point, she gets naked, um, only from behind in front of him, and you know I remember watching it. I always I'm always a little perturbed when I see you know we've talked about this before about using children in movies to do things like this, and you know. From a practical standpoint, I'm against it. Um, well, clearly, yeah, clearly they probably used a, 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 yeah, a body I hope, double. Jennifer yeah, Connelly would I hope be. They would. Yeah, I hope they would. have. Although this was uh, this was sh a shot in uh, I think uh, in Europe. So, so, right, so I, I don't know what right. kind of laws they have. I think they did use a body double. Here's why I'm conflicted. Logistically, practically, on principle, I'm against it. Um, yeah. However, it would be not only naive but false to say that a 14, 15 year old boy or a girl. Uh, do not have sexual impulses because they do, right. right? So they are showing a moment that is very true to life and the life experience. However, I'm not sure it's moral to actually show that moment. Right. All right, but that's not the point. Uh, well, well, well yeah. what I was getting at was yeah. after he he witnesses this, they sit down and talk. Yeah. Okay, and, and they talk. And at some point she says, she starts quoting, um, uh, I don't know, some sonnet. No, yeah. no, no, I'm sorry. She actually quotes uh, um, the Bible. Yes. Yeah. A Song of Solomon or something like that. Or uh, the Book of Solomon. And she, she, she says, oh, he'll, he's, he's my beloved. But, he will all, but then she puts her own two cents in and says, but he's a common street tough yeah. who will never amount to anything. And that goes back to what I had been saying, that he doesn't have the kind of ambition that Max does, and this causes the riff. Yeah. Okay, so... We've got a good sense of why you like this movie. 
It's the sweep. It's the. It's it's the. I have to tell you something. Delivering delivering on a, on a great epic. I got in about a two and a half hour debate slash argument with a friend last night who loves this movie. He says he's seen it twenty times, and he couldn't believe my take on this movie. But before I give you my my negative take on this movie, I'll give you the positives. One, it is one of the most gorgeous movies you will ever see in your whole life. Period. Point blank. I mean. You want to make a list of the 10 prettiest movies ever made? I think you will always be justified making an argument for this film. The cinematography, it has some of the widest shots I've ever seen in my entire life. The most famous one being the young children who are basically walking under the shadow. Is it the Brooklyn Bridge or the Manhattan Bridge? The I don't know what bridge that mm-hmm, is. Sure. But most of the covers of this movie and the posters are that shot of the of the technic, of the four children walking across the street with this enormous New York bridge in the background. I mean, it's just the cinematography in this movie, especially in the childhood sequences, are stunning. They are breathtaking. You know, uh, I just want to point out that scene where he's peeping in, yeah. it's shot almost entirely on, on a wide shot. Yeah. They don't do they don't do close-ups of her when she's, you know, close yeah. they don't do uh, close-ups. They they refuse to come in on her. They we yeah. they insist on keeping us with the same point of view that the that the boy has, and it, it is remarkable because you kind of want to see her a little bit closer up, kind of see her dancing closer up, but they won't they won't get that intimate yet. Something the old masters understood that the new ones don't for some reason is it's okay to stay on your wide shots. They're usually <laughs> your prettiest shots. And if I have one criticism, my main criticism of modern day cinematography, it's that. They never stay on the wide shots long enough. They're always trying to get off shots after three seconds, and you don't have to. And the Europeans do not ascribe to this philosophy. The Europeans and European cinema will often stay on a wide shot for quite a long time, as where the Americans will not do it. Okay, so that's one positive of the film, is that um, it's just gorgeous to look at the whole way through. Another positive, the score of the... It's a positive and a negative, in my opinion, the score of this movie. The score of this movie is so distinct. It is so memorable... Um, that, that in itself is a positive, but also I believe at times interferes with the film. Um, because sometimes I believe the score and what is happening Interesting. do not align. And I, I will get more to that in my criticisms of the movie. I think the acting on the most part, especially by James Woods is quite good. I have, but this is a flip coin. I think some of the acting in this movie is quite bad. Um, Look, it's a sweeping epic, and it's made by a master, and it's not a bad movie in any sense. It is a good movie, okay? Point blank. Uh, my criticisms of the movie do not take away that this is a skillfully made movie by a skillful film director. But here's my main criticism of the movie. Remember how you said I had told you a while ago before I rewatched this film? And by the way, I rewatched the four-and-a-half-hour version <laughs> called the Extended Director's Cut in which Martin Scorsese— You are a trooper. <laughs> in which Martin Scorsese found old, uh, unprocessed or post-pro—basically film, you know, hard to find, sort of found in the basement uh, footage from this movie that he inserted into the movie, but he couldn't correct it and make it look consistent with the rest of the film in the movie. So every time you got to one of these added scenes, it was quite apparent because the whole film stock changed, and it felt like you were watching something that needed post-processing and didn't get it. Um, but anyways— I now disagree with my earlier take. I think the childhood memory stuff is hokey and corny. And my friend couldn't believe I was saying this. He said, how can you say it's corny? What's corny about it? And every time I said something, he said, well, that's not an example. The tone of it was corny. The, 
my description of this movie is kind of like four friends running down the street with their with their arms over each other over each other's shoulders as some jaunty music plays. I just I found there to be a lack of seriousness in the movie, and then when it did try to get serious, especially in the beginning, like everything in the movie's on the surface. Some of the dialogue's incredibly corny. There's a moment when the children who are trying to blackmail a police officer find him having sex with a minor and when it in what should be a pretty serious and like threatening scene it's just corny you know they're like we're gonna be collecting your pension until you retire <laughs> and then the other kid's like you know he's like the guy's like oh what can i do for you boys and he's like you know he's all he's all caught and then noodles is like i want you to pay for my run with this young girl because she's like a child prostitute and then he's like i can't believe it, my first time and then being paid for by a lousy cop like there was just including the music there's a jauntiness to some of it like like almost yes i understand it's a memory mm-hmm. but i don't think that works in the film's favor my best example of this is if you took the godfather 2 the portions with robert de niro and you just made it much cornier much sillier my friend said you don't know what the definition of corny is he said because it's a brutal movie and it's got grittiness and that corny means um like overly sentimental but then i looked in the very same definition of corny that he sent me and it said trite and banal and the movie is certainly banal at times um uh, i assured my friend you would I, give I, a spirited I, and intelligent defense <laughs> of my uh, against my arguments only spirited not intelligent no uh I, I disagree with uh, the corniness. I thought the uh, the scene where uh, the cop is having sex with an underage yeah. prostitute. Uh, I, I hate to call her a prostitute because she's just well, she's having sex for money, but you know she's yeah. too young to be. That technically to, to is the definition. That. Technically, but it's not yeah. the spirit. Uh, yeah, that's right. She yeah, she's an entrepreneur. She's actually quite Kate. Like she's a she's a resourceful it was person. Startling. It was startling because nowadays she would be depicted, and in in most cases, rightly so, as a traumatized, abused victim. Yeah. Here, she's quite spirited, and that she's might, in on the con. She isn't. She isn't on the con. Uh, and you might think that. Well, no. What he what the cop would actually do is take out his knife stick and beat the hell out of the kids. Yeah. You know, there's essentially <laughs> kill them. Yes. Uh, so you're right. I, I I don't know. I I thought it was appropriate for the um for the period. You needed that kind of lightness to to uh, justify their their whole lives together. They wouldn't have stayed together if you know if it had been you know horrible I, I gritty way to the world. I understand kind of, they're uh, having fun a lot. I just think the way the movie depicts it mm-hmm. is kind of cartoonish at times. There's just a sort of like. To the whole that whole section of the movie, like I have a hard time verbalizing. My friend kept trying to jump on me because every time, you know, I, I mentioned the child prostitute scene, he goes, "That's so dark and gritty." I said, "But it's not portrayed that way. It's portrayed jauntily." You know, the the tone of that scene is not disturbing. No, not at all. I, and you may feel the need, especially with you know twenty first century yeah. uh, uh, sensibilities. Mm-hmm. To uh, depict it that Look, way, there are, there are moments in that in that first but, half of the movie that I think are depicted with great sensitivity. For instance, the character Patsy, as a young boy, hears that this child prostitute uh, will have sex with him if he gives her like a delicious pastry, <laughs> and he's waiting outside her door for her to like basically get out of the bath, and he's got this pastry waiting for her, and then he he, he tries to take a taste of of the frosting without her noticing. Like so, he he like he takes his finger and he rubs it around the edge of the frosting so that she won't know he had a taste. And then he just decides he'd rather, he, he's hungry. 
and you'd rather have this delicious pastry than have sex with her. And it's a very moving scene. I can't believe that you took it that way because I thought it was meant to be a comedic scene, exactly no. what you were complaining about. No, I no, thought that's this was a very scenes. witty. I, I, no, I love the scene. But I love the tone of the scene. Um, oh, I didn't think it was comedic. I thought it was sad and oh, touching. Oh, I, I got the completely different vibe. This is they're, they're showing kids who have no self-restraint. And this self-restraint uh, follows over in, in adulthood as, uh, you know, the De Niro character just can't seem to keep his hands off of uh, Elizabeth McGovern. He wants it, he wants it now. Well, here's why, here's why I disagree. Because in this entire beginning of the movie these kids are doing nothing but like trying to do adult things become gangsters criminals roll the trunk pull scams pull cons you know run the neighborhood blackmail police and in this one scene he's once again doing something that is sort of adult but then he's his his child self takes over and the child self doesn't want to have sex with a prostitute the child self wants to eat a delicious cupcake well the, well let's get I it straight the child the child self prefers sure and that's i think that's the point of the scene and i think it sets it up marvelously what motivates these kids no we disagree i i thought it was a touching scene a a a, 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 a sentimental scene that worked versus some other scenes were like spoiler alert one of their early childhood friends uh when their kids gets murdered by a gangster who they're trying to topple his brooklyn empire i mean it's so corny and the kid gets shot and then noodles picks up the kid and the kid goes i tripped and it just does, like, none of it works for me. It's just, how, how do I, like, my friend is like, but that's so touching. This this child died, and, and, he, and he interprets it as tripping. Yes, I understand. I could explain showgirls to you and make it sound <laughs> good, but the execution is not there. And by the way, my friend thinks showgirls is good, and he thinks Paul Verhoeven's a good director, which he's not. Uh, he, he's... He he has a pretty good he's a, has a pretty good reputation um, back in his home country with the Netherlands or something I think I but anyway 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 uh, the point is the movie has a tone to it where everything's on the surface subtext seems to be right on the surface I don't know it just it doesn't have these like sur- it's not cerebral to me at all it lacks all the cerebral qualities that The Godfather has you know uh, I think there there is a point to that though. On the flip side, it doesn't romanticize thugs the way The Godfather does. I love The Godfather. I disagree. I, 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 I love The Godfather, right? But these are brutal, hard people. In, in, their, in the adult scenes, earlier in the scenes, they're doing relatively harmless stuff, okay? But they're, they're planting the seeds as to what is going to happen. Um, and the very last scene where um, their friend die, you know, is shot, mm-hmm. in, is, is, that's basically their introduction to real adult consequence and i, I think did, not I long after that i disagree even when they're adults and they're pulling off some of their early capers the spirit of it is like they're all having a great time they rape a woman and she enjoys it oh now the tone of that is very bizarre and i yeah. don't i don't see that in the same in, in the same uh way as as the as the uh they're hustling that uh that that police chief mm-hmm. it, it has to do with uh it happens in a maternity war. I'll just say called the maternity scene. Yeah. I love that scene. Um, I thought it was very, very appropriate. That that scene was very bizarre, and I have a problem. And I think the, it's, the been, raping scene. it's been criticized before yeah. because and she... And Not because so. they rape her, because they're brutal people, but because she enjoys it. And they then kinda, she becomes, They kind of suggest that, uh, yeah, um, she, she almost begs for it. it. It's very ambiguous. It's very ambiguous. I just think there's a whole, like, once again, if I, if I could describe this movie in one, in one like, phrase, it would be four friends 
holding each other, putting their arms around each other's shoulders, like laughing and running and do 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 like, what a great time we're going to have coming all these capers. Like, I just think it's corny. And yeah, the movie is not bad because there are so many good parts in the movie. Forget mm-hmm. just the technical parts, like the cinematography. There are really good and powerful scenes in this movie. But for some reason, there is a tone to it. Like the Godfather's tone, for instance, all right, so... The Godfather one, you like the characters, and I hate I hate whenever people say the word root for people because rooting it just seems infantile and not intellectual and not with our brand. Yeah. Um, I like like pulling for people, so but sympathizing with that, sympathizing with, with the position. Yeah. But by the beginning of The Godfather two, within the first five minutes of The Godfather two, you are quite aware that there is something terribly wrong in this family, and the source of it is Michael. And not once in the movie are you. Are, is Michael a sympathetic character in The Godfather 2. He is the source of everyone's problems. He is the darkness. Um, and it's interesting because in The Godfather yeah. 3, he yeah. tries to reclaim his soul. Yeah, kind of but cool. in this movie, I don't know, like, yeah, they, they, they transition nicely, and at points they become more morally ambiguous and dark, but I just got to say, there is a sort of like, ain't crime fun tone to this film that I, I just found I just found corny. It almost felt like you should be watching this movie while a guy plays the piano as the score. <laughs> let, let me quote you something that George Will once, once wrote about Goodfellas. Yeah. He, he liked the movie. And the reason he liked it is because he showed the reason, that movie showed the reason why people go into crime. Yeah. Because they like getting stuff. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and because it's a thrill. Yeah. It's not because they're, they're, you know, they were beaten as kids necessarily. It wasn't because they had a tra- traumatic uh, childhood. It's because they like getting what they what they want. And this movie, I think, lays the groundwork uh, of the of the uh, of Goodfellas uh, and and the vitality that and you almost feel guilty about that you're enjoying their their escapades yeah. so much. I think this movie kind of taps into that. Look, my okay. criticism of the movie can uh-huh. be potentially defended through the title, which is Once Upon a Time. My main problem with this movie is it seems like a fairy tale, and yet it is called Once Upon a Time in America, which is how fairy tales usually open. But it's, I mean, ironically, because it doesn't end as, end like a fairy so, tale. So here's my point. I, I found myself, quite frankly, bored through much of the first two and a half hours of this movie. And yet by the end of it, when I finished it last night, I was totally engrossed. I actually preferred the end when it got serious. I thought I thought it was just more my speed. I'm exactly the opposite. So I I thought the seriousness was contrived and violated the tone of the movie. Yeah. Yet, you know. In fact, I don't even see the need of going to uh uh to well, nineteen sixty eight. I was like, don't give it away. Don't I don't want to give it away, but yeah. I, I don't buy anything about the 1968 scenes. I don't buy uh, Noodle's reaction when he finds out what's at play. Yeah. Okay. I I, I don't buy that at all. Also, I don't buy Elizabeth McGovern uh, 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 aging 40 years and not aging a day. Okay. So so <laughs> we're gonna talk about that because that might potentially be intentional, um, but we won't get there quite yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what I will say is my friend pointed out to me that I think I'm very narrow minded in tone. Um, I like serious movies. I don't... There's a type of tone that I just can't get down with, which is like a really overly romanticized tone to things. And you could say Goodfellas is romanticized. You could say The Godfather romanticizes crime to a certain degree. But these are... But the tones of them don't seem as... What's the best word? Silly? Mm -hmm. Even Goodfellas, when they're having a blast in the beginning, 
I just think it's it's more I don't know just skillful. It just doesn't have such a childlike naivete or like I I think I think um uh I mean what Leon am I reacting to, to here? Leon had to show what was appealing mm-hmm. about about the life. But the again, way, they had no debate. The there was no struggle, it, no moral the struggle. The way he in does this. it seems silly and hokey. I, I think the way he does it is kind of original and Look, convincing. Mark Scorsese both Mark Scorsese and Leone both in the first half of their masterpieces, this one and that one, Goodfellas and What's About Time in America, mm-hmm. both show why crime is fun in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But I think that the Leone one comes off as hokey and silly, while the uh Scorsese one, Goodfellas, comes off thrilling. You know, like, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know. I just, I can't get down with the sort of. I thought, I thought the, the first, the tone was, was correct. It had to be, had to be lighthearted. Here's our problem. It looks like a fantastic old movie, mm-hmm. but it also sounds like one. And I think my problem is how it sounds. I think the score doesn't work to its benefit. It just, it feels like, you know, the thing about The Godfather was that he took a classically made film. Like, he, The Godfather is not a cutting-edge film, right? He's taking what the masters did of the 30s and the 40s, and he's subverting it. This movie doesn't feel subverted. It just, yeah, he and he breaks between this this fairy tale like atmosphere with like harsh brutality, but neither of those work for me. It's just, it doesn't seem like it has a serious tone. That's my point. It seems like it has a romanticized tone, even a beautiful tone, but not a serious one. I don't think it required, I don't think it requires a uh, heavy intellectual serious tone at the beginning. He met his obligation to show where the appeal to crime comes from. But that's narrative. I, I I think he delivered it. But that's narrative. You're talking, see, I have no problem with the narrative plot points. Right. I have a problem with the execution, which is specifically the score, the acting, and the dialogue. And like all three of those things, specifically in that cop scene, I think are a perfect example. Where the, it's cop like, the, the cop oh, scene. Oh, the cop where, scene. Yeah. Where, he's, where, they, where they catch him and blackmail him for having sex with an underage prostitute. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it's played almost for like laughs. That could be, you know what, uh, I, I've heard that uh, some of this movie, there's been theories mm-hmm. that Noodle's in the opium den near the beginning. So this is what we need to get to. Yeah. He, that he might be, uh, this might be one long fantasy. Okay, so let's, 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 talk, let's talk about it now. And that, that, that uh, the cop scene yeah. uh, does have a looking back on something that so, was better than it actually was. I'm going to try and justify other people's arguments, which I'm not even sure I even buy, okay? Okay. So there is a theory that after Noodles witnesses his three friends being gunned down by the police, um... He doesn't actually see it, but he sees their dead bodies. He goes. He's the op- aftermath. Yeah. He goes to an opium den, and then everything changes. And there is a theory that everything that happens after the opium den is a is a drug addled fantasy in his mind. Um, I originally completely rejected this idea. I just thought it was nonsense, and how could it be true? On rewatch last night, I think there's much stronger evidence for it now. Is that anything to do with the phone call endlessly ringing? No. No. At one point, James Woods says to Robert De Niro, "It's a dream." He literally says it towards the end of the movie. Um, and I thought it Where, was in 19, when they're in 1968 when, when they're, or when they're in Florida. They're in Florida. Oh, right. They've just found out that prohibition has ended, which means they're out of business. And then James Woods starts to. Um, he starts to basically come up with a plan for uh, robbing the Federal Reserve, but before he reveals that, uh, he's like he's like drawing in the sand with a stick, and Robert Nier says, "What is that?" And he goes, "It's a dream," and I just felt that 
given now what I've read about this movie and the fact it's a dream, it felt more deliberate the way it said that. He didn't say it's my dream. He said mm-hmm. it's a dream. Um, the other part, when uh, Robert De Niro sees Elizabeth McGovern again, by the way, we're just going to say it now, a terrible actress. They should Not deep, a terrible actress. They should deep fake her with, gen- with adult Jennifer Connelly. She's so bad. <laughs> Not not a bad and not a terrible. Actress. We've both seen the first few uh, uh, seasons of of Down Abbey, right? Yes. I don't know how you can say that. Then she's one of the. My wife and I make fun of her all the time to this day. Her her awful expressions of surprise, which are like I'm just gonna do sound for you guys. <gasps> like it's just awful. <laughs> People gasp. What, what's your problem? She, no, nobody gasps. She is a very charismatic actress. She's 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 charming. And, she is uh, terrible. And she I doesn't think, have. I I won't argue that she has the biggest range. Of I think all. her career has proven it more in my category because she had to go to England to be in what at the time. I don't think anybody knew it was going to be a big hit, but like a lot of times when American actors go to England, it's mm-hmm. already over for them. Well, no, she she lived in England. She she married a British guy. Yeah, probably because she couldn't get work here. Oh, because she on. stinks. Well, you know her her. her All right, so he runs he runs anyway. back into her, and she hasn't aged a day. Yeah. Um, and it's like thirty to thirty five years later. And to yeah. quote a friend of mine, he says that it's kind of played like a nightmare. She's got like this paint on her face because she's an actress, and she's just finished doing a play of cleopatra she has since become a very famous uh, yeah. actress. yes and i don't know i i think they're look i think that if it is a dream it's to the movie's discredit and not to its credit because i think dreams are awful and you know i was like i was arguing with my friend last night nobody has dreams that play out like sensible movies <laughs> they don't um if we ever get the technology to monitor dreams they will be mostly incoherent nonsense well, but, it could be it could be dreams, but also um, I've heard people think uh, uh, suggest that it was a fantasy. Okay, so maybe steered by yeah, him. it would have to be. But a you're fantasy. absolutely right. It would have to be a fantasy. It would be to the detriment of the movie yeah. so to there, say that this that, that the second right. part was a dream. I totally so not agree only that, with, but in the fantasy. fantasy, there are scenes he's not even in. People don't fantasize. Or and they definitely don't dream scenes without their perspective, especially when they're about like labor negotiations. It just, <laughs> but they they might, as far as a, a fantasy goes. So yeah. the idea is that Robert, I, I reject that. I, yeah. I reject that. But um, it might be true. I don't. It reject might it. be true, but I, I reject it. And I don't yeah. reject it as much as I used to. Uh-huh. And what I will say is that apparently uh, Leone has said that he interpreted the book that, that mm-hmm. it's based on as being a dream, but that's not to say he made it a dream. However, I think he deliberately made it ambiguous. Yeah. That's where I'm at now is before. Nobody ever fan, nobody ever dreams or fantasizes about a Senate hearing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's yeah. my point. Yeah. Um, but I do think now that he probably made it deliberately ambiguous. I never like dreams. I hate it was all a dream because you can always poke so many holes in it and it's usually totally unnecessary. Dream, fantasy, whatever. I understand that the idea is that Robert De Niro is creating a narrative in his mind to escape his guilt, which is that he got his friends killed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting point to make. Yeah, summing up the movie, I, I my favorite part was the beginning, which I found... Uh, Fairly convincing mm-hmm. and entertaining, uh, which which you found, uh, you know, uh, hokey. Yeah. Uh, as the movie transitions, it has some remarkable sequences that that I love. The closer it gets to 1968, and as you say, get gets serious. The more unbelievable I, th- I thought it be- uh, thought it become. And I see and, that's and, and, funny. and very very unfortunate. That's why I, I think that goes along, Wayne, towards 
you're picking out plot holes for believability, and I get that. That makes logical sense. For me, it's tone. When I see, well, no, 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 I, I disagree with you because the tone in 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 yeah. the in the later the the later uh, parts, I think, are, is is are very uncertain. Well, he's um, uncertain. Robert De Niro's uncertain. By the way, I don't mind his performance. Oh, I want to say this now before hmm. we forget. Okay, I am so sick of seeing Gentiles play Jews. I don't know how many times <laughs> I got to say this. Four Jewish characters, now one of them is played by a Jewish actor. Now, hold on. Isn't isn't Robert De Niro part Jewish? Is he? I, I think he had a grandfather. I I, I don't know. Maybe I caught it he's on one of those. He's an Italian. He's an Italian. Adam Sandler songs where he's like, a, I don't know. I mean, the Hanukkah I, I think, songs. <laughs> yeah. Um, he I ain't think Jewish. there is Jewish. He's he not a Jewish enough. He ain't enough. Jewish enough. Yes. Let yeah. me tell you. I am uh-huh. so sick. They couldn't find It's Hollywood. They couldn't find one Jew? <laughs> I mean, get out of here. Although technically it wasn't Hollywood. It was mostly filmed in Europe. Yeah. However, yeah. the childhood scenes were mostly filmed in New York, which is, is right? good. Yeah, I read oh, about I, that. I didn't know that. Oh. Okay, so Steve, let's do uh, favorite lines. All right. Um, my fa- <laughs> my favorite line, and I'm not sure why, why um, I'm not sure why I picked this. Uh, it has to do with, um, he, he's talking with, um, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth McGovern's McGovern. brother. Yeah. And it is Same near fats. the end. Fats, I think? Yeah. Uh, he, he's, it's funny because he's... Because uh... he's fat? <laughs> uh, no, because he, he, there's no way he's related to Elizabeth McGovern uh, or yeah, Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You couldn't ask for people who look uh, more, more different. Yeah. Couldn't possibly. Um, n- near the end of the movie, he's looking back on his life. He kind of sums it up. Uh, Noodle sums it up when he's talking to Fats. He says... Uh, you can always tell the winners at the starting gate. You can always tell the winners, and you can tell the losers. And th- this harks back throughout throughout the movie. Yeah, you know he's so insecure from that time when he was talking to, to um, little Jennifer Connelly, and she says, "Yeah, you're my beloved, but you, you'll always be a two bit hood." Yeah, and he knows that she's going to be grow on, go on to great mm-hmm. things. He never wants to attain it. He, he's basically a loser. Yeah, himself. Yeah. And at the at the very end, I won't give anything away. He chooses the loser's path. Yeah, right. You know? So, so my favorite line is um, at this point, Max is really he's really trying to get in the big time the big time game the big time money, and uh, De Niro doesn't want to do it. Noodles doesn't want to do it, and Max says to him, "You know, you're a loser. You've got the stench of the streets on you." <laughs> and then De Niro says, "I like the stench of the streets." He goes, "Opens up my lungs." And he goes, "Besides," he said, "He goes also gives me a heart on." <laughs> Well, that's uh, that. That's graphic writing. That's yeah. that's, that's, that's But yeah, I mean, for, all right. So, Steve, you got some questions for me? I do. All right, I do. Um, who the hell were the thugs at the beginning of the movie? Where the hell did they came from? I only we, saw I the three hour I can't and forty minutes. Answer this question without giving away spoilers, so I won't do it. Are you absolutely sure? Th- they about must it? be. They must be. And if my problem is they don't make it clear at all who I think they are, I cannot give away because of, it would spoil the movie. So I'm okay, not going to do it. But um, just have your ears peeled, uh, your ears pe- peeled, peeled, your eyes peeled when you watch the very beginning of this movie because I'll be hanged if I can figure out who these people definitively are. I have an idea. They're looking for De Niro because they believe De Niro ratted out his friends, which De Niro did. The reason De Niro yes. ratted out his friends is that they were trying to rob Fort Knox. It's not Fort Knox, but the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, yeah. And De Niro knew that this would get them all killed. So what he decides to do is he's going to basically get them... Uh, he's going to get them set up uh 
caught shipping booze, which will only get them like about a year and a half. And he's going to go with them so that he gets caught as well. So basically they're going to go pick up some booze during prohibition towards the end of prohibition. And when they get caught and are found guilty, the sentence will only be about a year and a half. But in this year and a half, they will have lost the will and passion to rob the federal reserve. That's the (laughs) most I'll say. So as a result, uh, something happens and De Niro does not come on this mission. He plans to, but he doesn't. And it's not through his own choice either. And as a result, his friends are killed. In the very beginning of the movie, some gangsters are looking for De Niro. Which they, is presumably, I think, within hours yeah. of within the discovery hours of, it happening, of, uh, of the death of his they friends. They come looking for De Niro, yeah. saying, where is that rat? We're going to kill him. Who they that, are? That's the first time I've asked a question that I didn't know the answer to, or I didn't have an I answer I think for. I know the answer, but I won't uh-huh. give it away. But also, the answer might lie in the eight hours of movie that is not seen. <laughs> well, I was wondering, I watched the three hour and 49 minute, yeah. you watched the four hour not, and 20 minutes. It's, it's not it doesn't. It doesn't, uh, no. no. It's, not, it's not more, more clear. Okay. Well, uh, was, which one, um, which one was better? Did you say you saw the three hour and 49 minute? Oh, uh, your version's better. I saw the four and a half hour I version. I suspected that. Your, your, you cannot. I suspected re- that. This, the version I saw is only for people who love movies so much and know about this movie that they are willing to see unprocessed film stock just for the content itself. Yeah. Um, otherwise, absolutely not. Do not watch the version I watched. Watch the one that you'll be able to find almost everywhere. There are a couple of plot points I'd like to know if this if if the extended no, version clarifies. Actually, but it, no, all it does his relationship with with his it, girlfriend. It clarifies one thing that's a spoiler, so I won't give that away. Okay. But for the most part, it just adds in little details here and there. Well, actually, no, it does show that one of the added things is how he meets his girlfriend. Because I don't okay. think that's in your version. Yeah, I thought I thought they gave that character a little short trip. She's in, she's originally a prostitute, yeah. and he pays her, and they sleep together, and then she leaves him a, mo- a note that says, "Next time, less money, more talk." Or more talking, which means that you know she likes him more than just being a John. Yeah. Okay, so what's your next question? What do you think about the treatment of women in this movie? It's Here's a twenty first century. Uh, uh... Okay, so um, there's one character uh, who's not a good depiction for females. Um, she gets raped, enjoys it, and then becomes a gangster herself, basically, and partners up with the people that rape her. You could almost say that that is a fantasy of a particularly yeah. incredibly sordid prob- type, yeah, very, incredibly very, problematic yeah. for yeah. good reason. Um, however, that being said, they're brutal to the women in this movie, and that's not a discredit to the film because their their brutality is shown in a, quite a negative light. You're not meant to think this is anything good. There, There's another uh, yeah. rape scene. It's, in fact, it's, it's horrifying in fact, to watch. to show petty gangsters treating females well would probably be inaccurate. Um, yeah. So if anything... That would have been from the, like the, the, the 30s. And in fact, you know, one of the maybe. issues in this movie is that... Okay, I was just going to say, Robert De Niro rapes somebody. And my problem is, how can you... Like I said, Michael Corleone, for all of The Godfather 2, is the villain of that movie. But Robert De Niro does something so terrible... And yet, the movie's still asking us to sympathize with him, and it's hard. It's not—I I, I just don't know if it works. Yeah. Uh, that would have been another question. One, another question I had was, um, uh, do you buy Noodles betraying Max? I think we went over that. Yeah, I buy it. I, I buy it. I well, this, just this can't movie's get about, I, there's no This movie's having... about brotherhood in a lot of ways, and, and how brotherhood can actually be toxic. And in fact, my other favorite line in the movie is at one point De Niro says, uh, he goes, um, I get, let me read out exactly. He says, uh, I had a friend once, went bad for him, went bad for me too. 
it's a real simple line, but he's mm. talking about his entire friendship and how it negatively impacted both of them. Mm. So yeah, I buy it, sure. Because I get it. I think we all have a friend who we met in childhood, who in adulthood we don't like, and yet we remain friends with them. It's hard to explain because our ties of loyalty are so deep that if we were, oh, I'll put it this way, if we were to meet this person as an adult, we would never be friends with them. And yet, because our ties are go so far back, we remain friends, and the friendship can be problematic. When he comes out of prison, when Noodles comes out of prison, mm-hmm. it's not long before you see... The tension. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's this one particular betrayal that they both commit yeah. with somebody they're in business with, and uh, Noodles thinks they shouldn't have betrayed him. Max says this is the only way to, to elevate it. So it's already started to deteriorate. Yeah. So, uh, you know, maybe I should be a, a little less hard on this, but I... I I, I just could not believe that he would do that. He would do anything other than that to keep him from robbing Noodles the reserve. Seems like a guy who does things that he knows won't work out well for him. So I buy it. I do buy it. Okay, what else you got for me? Anything? Uh, last question: Is this Leone's best movie that you've seen? I haven't seen them all, and there aren't any. There aren't very many. He only directed just like a hand, mm-hmm. like about a, about a half dozen. Is this the best movie? Okay. Um. So I'm. Spoiler alert: I'm not a huge Leone fan. I have seen all his movies. Um, I don't know. I go with no. I think once about time in America is, or maybe you know what? You know what? It's 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 um the good, bad, and the ugly. It's the good. Mm. The, here's why: the good, the bad, and the ugly is his most c- cerebral film. In my, it's the most serious. It's most in line with the tones I like. Um, it has the least corniness to it, in my opinion. So I'm going with the good, the bad, and the ugly. If I wanted to see another movie again, yeah, of of of. The movies I've seen, I'd want to see uh, Once Upon a Time in the West again. Yeah, I like Once Upon a Time in the West, but I think it's got some corniness to it that um, The Good, Bad, and the Ugly doesn't have. I like a very cerebral tone mm-hmm. mixed with humanity. Um, I don't like the jaunty, like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. <laughs> One I, of the things that I like about Once Upon a Time in America is the early tone. Yeah, so... I, I think it's justified. Yeah. Okay, so bad pitches or you got bad pitches? Right. How about this? Right, um, uh, uh, I think this is the Godfather Part Two. Okay, meets Tag. Tag. <laughs> now, Tag is a recent movie in which oh, lifelong friends <laughs> have played a game. Good lord! <laughs> hey, you said bad pitch, right? Yeah. This is not a great pitch. Think of it. You got Michael Corleone. Only he's got a bunch of friends that he's yeah. known from childhood, and they yeah. play these games that are that are actually crime. By the way, not to the movie's <laughs> credit at all. <laughs> okay, so here's mine. Mine's a little different this time. Okay, mine is Mario Puzo meets Woody Allen um, for very obvious reasons. <laughs> okay. And by the way, that is not a compliment. It is meant to be derogatory <laughs> because look, yeah, is Woody Allen Jewish? Sure, uh, and that's what inspires it. But also, it's like. It's too comedic at times. It just is like even so. Even the scene with Danny Aiello, you like it. I just think it's too fun, too comedic, too lighthearted. It it needed to be again. I I like the tone where they're saying, "What's the draw of crime?" You know, this seems sometimes like, they get a kick out of what they're doing. This seems like a movie at times the filmmakers of the seventies rejected. It the tones of this movie at times. Seems like the type of movies that filmmakers that became famous in the 70s, like Coppola and Scorsese, that they rejected these tones, these theatrical, whimsical tones, and wanted to get more serious. And yeah, there's gritty violence and rape and all this stuff, but it just, it, I just think the tones of this movie conflict. I, if I'm hearing you right, I think you think that the first part is Leone wanting to be an entertainer. 
and I, delivering delivering enjoyment to the audience more than revelation. Maybe. I just think it's I, corny. I, I just think what he's doing is corny. I just think mm-hmm. it's silly. I just think mm-hmm. it's too silly. Like, it looks beautiful, mm-hmm. and the score at times can be beautiful. And I love the scene with the cupcake. I found it so endearing. But I think the, the scene with the cop... I thought like, it was telling and humorous. <laughs> I just found all the times the kids are like, we, So we can roll the drunk! It just, it just didn't come off for me. I just thought it was dumb. As, as usual, your, um, your, uh, your views are as fascinating as they are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, that's more than my friend gave me last night. <laughs> okay, anything else on this movie? Um, I, see the, I, wanna, I do think I want to see the longer I'll, version. I'll lend it to you. Okay. Uh, for anyone else who hasn't seen this movie, don't see the version I watched, which is fine because you'll only be able to get it on DVD anyways. Um, everything streaming is this, the version Steve watched. And before we go... On the last episode, you guys would have heard um, me doing a special segment with my friend Sean Jones about the movie Possession. Well, I told you I was going to plug a podcast that we were going to do. Sean Jones and I are starting a literature podcast, much, hey, like, hey. much like the Hidden Gems movie podcast, but for books. And it is going to be called the Spinecrackers Podcast. Spinecracker, I love yeah. that. Thank you. So so <laughs> keep an eye out for that, guys. I'll let you know when the first episode is up. I'll probably link it to whatever that this is on. So yeah, if you liked my discussion with Sean Jones about Possession, we're starting a new book podcast it's called the spine crackers podcast steve a pleasure as always certainly